Hello, and welcome to the Palladium Podcast. I'm Wolf Tyvee, Editor-in-Chief of Palladium. I'm joined, as usual, by Ash Milton, our Managing Editor. Hey, everyone. Greetings from Rio. Oh, yeah. Ash is in Brazil this week. I guess, actually, for more than a week. Maybe maybe months? How long are you going to be there, Ash? Yeah, uh, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, I've been here a few weeks. I'm going to be here until at least uh, January sometime, uh, depending on... What's going on elsewhere? I may be here longer than that. We've got a good crew down here, some fellow Palladium people, some other friends of ours. Governance, futurism, Brazil. Yeah, to Brazil. <laughs> Taking some of what we've talked about, about going out to the frontiers to heart, let's say. Yeah, well, that's 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 maybe related to the core subject of today's podcast, which is Palladium 4, Cultivating Elites. So obviously we do a quarterly print magazine. Um, which which really is is the centerpiece of our work at Palladium, and the fourth one, which is coming out shortly in a few weeks, is Palladium Four: Cultivating Elites. So we put together a lot of thought on that one. We put together a bunch of new articles. Some of those explored themes like going out to the frontier to to sort of make your fortune, to find your destiny. Um, we had one in particular that was from Avi. Um, Avi Marajan, he's written for us a couple times about going out to these places that are somewhat underworld. So he had the example of of uh, Shanghai underworld and um, of course Brazil and the favelas, and and so that inspired Ash and and others to go visit Brazil for a while. Um, and then there was an article from me from me uh, entitled "Quit Your Job," which is about again kind of escaping from the matrix, going out to the frontiers, and finding some new kind of destiny which which is really one of the activities that we think is is necessary in elite cultivation the going out to the frontier part is is one of the themes that we explore in in palladium 4 another one of the themes uh, the other two themes basically are the american elite universities so we have we bring in articles like uh, natalia's article which was titled the real problem at yale is not free speech we also had Saffron's article about Harvard is training managers instead of elites. And we had a new article from Jasper. We take a, a pro skull and bone stance uh, to some degree. And, but, but, but of course, we, cr- we criticize that it isn't what it used to yeah, be. Yeah, they don't get away that easily. <laughs> yeah. So, and then the second, the second big theme uh, out of three in Playing 4 is the theme of kind of American governance culture right now, American elites right now, and and ideas of where that could go. So that's where we explore things like, okay, what happened with the wasps? Um, what should America's next aristocracy look like? And how does liberal civility decay? You know, what 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 is the sort of inherent failure mode of of liberal elite culture? So yeah, so these were some of the themes we explored in Palladium 4. Palladium 4 is coming soon. The best way to get it is to be subscribed, to be one of our donors. Um, we very much appreciate our supporters, and so we send them magazines. So if you go to palladiummag.com slash subscribe, you can get your copy. Yeah, and just you know, a little bit about these print magazines. This is something that we, we started developing because we wanted to have physical artifacts of the work we're doing. You know, we think of Palladium, it's not just a writing project. It's, you know, we're not just reporting on things. We're doing that as well. Uh, there's an aesthetic component to this, right? And these print magazines, high quality materials, there's original custom art in them, uh, cover art, art through, you know, spreads through the piece. 
and so on, uh, and original writing, uh, as you've already heard. And, you know, when, when you get these magazines, they go on a coffee table, they go on a bookshelf, they can be for display. They're meant to be aesthetic artifacts, and we hope you enjoy them. We hope you subscribe if you haven't yet. Uh, we don't think you'll regret it. Yeah, so now that we're done uh, sort of making the case for the magazine itself, let's talk about the content and our thought process that went into this one in particular. So this is something we wanted to talk about today, Palladium 4. Cultivating elites. What's the big deal there? The other thing we wanted to talk about today was my article in particular, because I think we're going to talk to a few of the authors on the podcast about their articles, about their thoughts on the subject, just kind of develop those thoughts, lay them out for you, the listeners. Um, so we wanted to start with, okay, the overall concept of the magazine and my article. So Ash, I think you had a question, question to kick this off. Yeah. Well, let's, let's start with something very simple. Cultivating elites. There is already a claim in the title here. Are you telling me, Wolf, that elites don't just fall from the sky, adorned by the sun, fully formed, ready to step into the halls of state? You have to shape them somehow? There's a social, environmental thing to this? What is the claim that we're making here? Right. So, so you know, contrary to a lot of, a lot of thought that, like, you don't have to worry about that problem at all. You just need to like make sure the election system, you know, picks the right people. Never mind where they where they sort of come from or whatever, or or views that like you always have an elite and they're always corrupt, so it doesn't matter. Or like elites, elite. You know what what actually matters is is the historical kind of material forces. Um, there's all these different views out there. Our view is actually this very humanistic view, which is the people actually matter. You need to cultivate the right people to rule a country. And if you don't have people who are oriented properly to that task, it's not going to go well. So, so that, that's like that's the most basic form of the claim. Right. So I think I think there's a few different parts of this like, that we can get into. We're also cultivating to be something specific. Right. And especially in, in our culture. Um, the notion that you cultivate someone to act as an elite specifically, as opposed to something else like a middle class person or a tradesman or a manager or an upper middle class person, uh, that is not an obvious claim. That's maybe even a controversial claim. But we're claiming that there's a way of being, a way of acting, right? A way of organizing your power, your life, the, the kind of goals that you have and the sort of networks you create and the kind of culture you build that lets you act in a way that is significantly different in kind from people uh, throughout the rest of society, right? You know, ac across varying wealth and things like that. Um, yeah, I think in our discussions, something that we kind of ended up centering on was this idea that elites, uh, you know, in kind of the, the sort of ultimate teleological expression of the thing, elites act in a world historic way. They, they can kind of liberate themselves from the the more mundane day-to-day -day concerns about wealth and even things like you know uh inherited culture the constraints of history uh ideally they figure out how to act with a high degree of sovereignty from those things so that they can act in a way as free people right as as people who have the ability to pursue goals that aren't open to most yeah so ed education is this big part of it so obviously you know we're talking about the elite universities but also overall governing culture, overall institutions, just the whole way of life of the elite, it really makes 
it, it's a big part of the picture of of what kind of people you end up with. So I, I think I think it's worth kind of backing up a little bit, talking about some of the basic claims that we've made through the through the past and and how they relate to this. So in particular, there's always power in society. There's always even organized power in society. And on an equilibrium level, on a long term, you always have someone in charge because the power is always available for someone to grab and organize into a government. And so you always, or on the long run, you always have someone in charge. But that doesn't mean that at any given time, the thing is all that coherent. And it doesn't mean that that you know you're off the hook as far as like forming that elite in particular the thing about the long-term prediction is that that involves you know one elite decays and becomes impotent and another elite comes in and replaces them um and so i think i think what's happened in our society sort of recently over the last century let's say is we've gone from having a fairly confident and fairly fairly state-oriented elite like an elite that that had a particular state project that, that they had i mean in america this is the united states of america the federal government etc that was really this big project of a particular elite and that whole view and, and that was the wasp elite basically the the original kind of elite of the american uh, system and that that whole milieu has decayed through the 20th century and is no longer really dominant though there are elements of it lying around but but the interesting thing is it hasn't really been replaced by anything and so we have this weird situation now where you have these scraps of of other interest groups and various people who have a lot of power and thus you know are are vaguely what you might call elites but there's something missing there's something missing from the whole picture and there's something that hasn't been properly cultivated here and that's just even on the basis of do these people have power do these people are they actually in charge is there even anyone in charge um you certainly have these these powerful cliques that that are able to you know steer the world one way or the other but you know little in terms of being able to actually build up a country more more like um, there are all these institutions around and there's these people who can subvert them one way or another. And I, I think that's, you know, it's a really unfortunate situation to be in. And so we wanted to really explore this, uh, this whole theme of cultivating elites. Something I want to just point out there, um, the American national elite wolf that you drew uh, attention to there. So it took a long time to cultivate even America's national elite. And, you know, uh, we have a, a piece in Palladium 4 that goes into that in some detail. But, you know, editing some of that work, it, it's, I don't think we actually think about even the wasp elites in the correct way, right? Like, we, I think that there's this popular myth, and to an extent, it's one that America built for itself, right? It was this, uh, you know, from the Pilgrim founding and then to the American Revolution, there, you, you kind of always get the sense that America is, is kind of this unified sort of, you know, community of destiny or something. Uh, that's not at all the case, right? What you in fact have are a bunch of families with very distinct cultures in very different cities, some of whom are writing to each other and coordinating politically and organizing militarily and have some similar religious ideas, although not all. And But somehow they coordinate well enough that they can 
you know, take control of uh, the British colonies that they already kind of control, right? Uh, it's the most powerful people in the American colonies that end up becoming the new Republican elite. Uh, but then it takes another about, you know, 100 to 150 years for America to really have on a widespread scale a national elite because these families have to mix first through, you know, places like Harvard and Yale, through legislatures and courts, through, you know, the cities as they grow. You have all these social clubs where people interact. Yeah, particular offices. Exactly. And, and you know, the, the religious identities kind of change, right? Like the, the sort of old Protestantism kind of fades out and you have things like, you know, Unitarianism or Transcendentalism kind of uh, take take the stage for a while. Although you can obviously kind of see some of the, let's say, like the similarities in temperament. But by the time you get to like 1850 or 1900, where you have this very firmly established national elite that is like a proper class of its own, this is now like a couple, you know, several generations removed from the American founding and <laughs> even further, obviously, from like the original colonies. And so it, even in a place like this with a high degree of similarity at that time, right, and, uh, you know, kind of similar religious commitments and the sense of like, you know, we're all here on this frontier and we have to survive, even there, it took a long time to cultivate an elite class. So I just want to highlight that, that this is a supremely difficult thing to do. And America achieved it for a period of about 100 years. And then in the 20th century, and as we've said, we see the decline of that class for, you know, various reasons. I don't think this is probably the place here to go into uh, all the reasons that that happened. But by, you know, the 1970s, the 1980s, it seems like the old wasp class has effectively lost its grip on power in the way that they had it, you know, a couple generations before that. Right. Yeah. I mean, you look at you look at the people occupying government offices, you know, especially the Supreme Court, for example, and it's just, you know, well, it used to be wasps. Now it's Catholics and Jews. Right. It's it's like very clear replacement. And, and we at the moment arguably have even less priors to work with than the old American national elite had to work with when they became an elite. So it's a very difficult situation. So one of the things that's very interesting about the American Revolution is um I think this differs somewhat from from the revolutions elsewhere on the the North American or sorry in the Americas, you know, including especially South America. You have this this local elite, right? The the colonial elite deciding to break off from the political structure they had and go and start a new political project that actually further unifies them. And and this is interesting. It's 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 not like, oh, there was an elite and then some bunch of populists or revolutionaries or, or whatever come and overthrow that elite. Like it wasn't a revolution in that sense. It was a it was like a, a, a bunch of elites without a defined project, realizing that they were in a bad situation and realizing that they had to basically break off to be able to control their own destiny and and create this political project together, the United States of America. And that's this, it's really interesting to think about how that interplays with this elite formation thing. They actually, they go and they actually have this coordinating project. So the coordinating project is actually this very important part of, of I think, how you end up with a, a cultivated elite. It's sort of like you have all these powerful people, they have similar outlook, they have ideas, but they're still sort of a proto-elite before, before that moment of truth happens and they actually 
uh, seize the thing and, and create a new project. And I, I feel like right now it's it's sort of a similar moment. Like we we have now. I don't know if anyone is going to have the the coherence to actually seize seize something definite out of this moment, but we have something like this going on now. Or I think you know post Cold War and and just after the whole 20th century what we have is is a very international uh or very global kind of economic system very global interconnections of everything the the nation states themselves and their sovereignty and their institutions and and you know maintaining populations and so on that's really been uh, in in some ways neglected the elites maybe aren't getting along very well they don't have this coherent project um that they're doing you know you have these vague kind of half half baked things that you hear coming out of these these uh global elite circles but but really they're not impressive they they don't seem like they have uh, a real definite project they certainly haven't united united uh the efforts around them maybe maybe only produced sort of a polite consensus but not an actual operating unity um and and so we have the situation of like relative incoherence, relative vulnerability to, you know, outside forcing. But but there hasn't been for quite some time really anything from outside that could force the, the question. But maybe now with the rise of China and the decline of the United States, it's going to become clear that something has to be done. Um, and and, you know, maybe this is going to be this moment where a new elite can say, hey, wait a minute we actually need this coherent political project. Someone will put that together and boom, away we go on some new political project that actually has a, a definite existence the way the United States of America has and, and isn't this indefinite thing like what, what I think we currently have in the elite situation. And and yeah, so, th- so then again, back to our, back to Palladium 4, back to our work, it's some of what we're trying to do is imagine, you know, w- what should what should young people be doing today and how should we be thinking about the future uh, of the formation of elites in the context of that that sort of uh, moment of possibility. Um, just to get a little bit more on what's in Palladium 4, um, this whole discussion we've been having about the history of the WASP elite, that's that's um, very closely related to an article we had by Charles Kuhlm in Palladium 4. He wrote, he wrote for us this history of kind of the wasp elite, how how they rose and were formed, and how they uh, how they later declined, and and what it would have to look like for for something to come next. Yeah, and and I think one of the things that I like about this piece, and that I think is generally important when you look at elite histories, is things like social clubs, things like family connections, which I think that we get trained from very early on to basically ignore. Because what is the way that you learn about the history of your ruling elite in America, right? You learn about a list of presidents. Uh, Oh, two of the presidents are named Roosevelt. Hmm, is there any tie between them? Do they have any kind of like familiar? We're not going to ask those questions, right? We, we, we kind of have hints or, you know, the, the, the Adamses. Two of them, two of the presidents are named Bush. I think, I think there's other examples. As yeah. Well, yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, and, and both Bushes are in something called skull and bones uh, and went to Yale. <laughs> right. You know, there, there's we these have an hints on that. and, and I want to like call, call something out here uh, just in, in terms of like kind of taking a particular lens off the table that we specifically wanted to avoid, particularly with things like the skull and bones piece. I think one of the problems we get in america specifically 
because we have the myth that these kind of very organized forms of power, it's not that they don't exist. I think they've always existed in, in the American like mythos, but they're always considered illegitimate to a degree. Like they shouldn't really be happening. There's all these official institutions you should be doing things through. And so if those things are happening, there's basically one lens you can look at them through, which is the conspiratorial lens, right? These are a bunch of like nefarious characters who are secretly plotting to like take over the the world and turn us all into dog food or whatever it is um and <laughs> yeah. you know what what you actually they probably get, wouldn't even feed us dog food yeah well, <laughs> well we get fed to their dogs right to the to yeah. the little stroller stroller spaniels or whatever but uh, but what you know what you get and and again this has to do with the the observation that power exists in all societies power takes different shapes in different societies but there's you know there's some things that are pretty much everywhere in, you know, at least in large-scale societies, people operate through families. People marry each other. People find ways to transfer wealth from ancestors to descendants. People make sure that the forms of wealth that they're attached to kind of maintain, you know, as much as political power as, as possible. People try to maintain the backroom deals that they have, right? There are these very normal things that happen uh, that that go on, right? And, and, and many of them help make society function uh you know they're not just a cause of like disorder conspiracy we don't look at that kind of infrastructure in this kind of objective way right this kind of landscape of how power objectively operates that can be bad sometimes but can often be good as well arguably even conspiracy can be done for good purposes right like uh most you know i think most americans think that the american independence was a good thing that was a conspiracy done by the most powerful people in society and successfully carried out so there is a way that power works here that we're trying to gauge at that is is kind of uh, upstream in a way from the moral questions which come into play once you are already in these positions and you are making decisions about how power is used, but not because they're conspiracies, right? Because they're not because they're wrong. conspiracies, because they're they're just lame, <laughs> or you know they lack courage, or a million things we can say about them without just their conspiracies. Yeah. So. Um, I think the thing you're bringing up with, with like the conspiracy lens, uh, uh, you know, these, these elites being sort of viewed as nefarious and, and conspiratorial, that is, isn't that really a, a sort of 20th century phenomenon? No, I, in America, I don't think it is. America is a funny country. In well, that I think, way. I think there is something older, like the, the distaste for aristocracy, which, you know, there's this very schizophrenic view on aristocracy right from the beginning and you know, of the republic you know you have people like jefferson championing this idea of a natural aristocracy and yet you know what's that actually going to look like okay well it's going to look like a bunch of new elites coming in and like building up building up families powerful families that that then you know rule and you know inevitably are going to construct privileges for themselves like a natural aristocracy just becomes, well, that's just an aristocracy, isn't it? But then you also have all this like fighting against that idea with things like trying to ban certain forms of inheritance, you know, where you give everything to the the eldest son, um, primogeniture. And, and, you know, various, various, like the entire American project in a way is like, defined itself against aristocracy in some, in some funny ways. And it, despite being essentially like 
this proto aristocratic project and and that you know maybe that's part of why it it didn't last quite as long as it could is like if the elite doesn't have a positive self-conception for what they actually are and they can't ideologically admit what they actually are then you know you're not going to make it and this this is this is the point of of natalia's article that we start the issue off with right it's the real problem at Yale is not free speech. The real problem is that these elites have no clue what they should be. They have no positive vision of what it means to be an established elite and therefore what they're training themselves for. All they have is these ideas of, oh, you know, we want to tear down the privileges uh, or whatever. And and like th- that's that's in some ways direct continuity with the founding of the American Republic, right? Is they come in with these anti-aristocratic ideas that are really about kind of tearing down this arbitrariness of the king and the aristocrats and maybe those were were decadent at the time right they 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 were and that's why they lost but but you know they 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 sort of went against the principle um rather than against the implementation and and i think i think that led to this this very schizophrenic self-conception in the american elite and that that ultimately led to the, the downfall and 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 to our current state of decline now maybe it would have declined anyways right maybe it would have declined anyways and the hypocrisy actually didn't matter but um i, I think honesty generally makes things last last a lot better and so one of the things we're exploring with with our work in this area is well what if you actually approach this question much more directly and honestly and you said nope we're doing aristocracy it's there's going to be people in charge. They're going to be in charge within the same families for a long time because that's just what happens. And we're going to say that's fine, that's good, uh, but it needs to be virtuous. It needs to have virtue, and and we need to think very hard about what it takes so that when you know the next generation succeeds the previous generation among the elite, that next generation is actually worthy of it. They they aren't just you know these these. Uh, trained poodles jumping through hoops to get into the right schools and then and then goofing off and ending up ending up crunching spreadsheets at Goldman Sachs that that's not a, an elite destiny that that's that's pathetic drone sort of middle class thing um in, and you know for for normal actual middle class people that's perfectly respectable that's that's a good way to contribute to society for the children of actual elites that is not what they should be doing. They they have the privilege to do much more than that, and we need to we need to be honest about that. But and and move beyond it to build build virtues that go much beyond the the sort of working within the matrix thing. And this is this is one of the big themes that we're trying to explore. And and I think you need to be honest about the fact that what you're talking about is is some form of aristocracy. And this maybe brings us to one of the articles, another one of the articles in in Palladium Four, which is. America's next aristocracy. I'd love to talk about that one, but Ash, I'll turn it over to you. Just if you have anything to respond to here. Yeah, what well, one point I want to push back a bit on on the idea that <laughs> uh, the the Republican thing was actually um, or okay. Let me let me lay out my my thought here, and and we we can kind of figure out what the implication is. But you know the the way that we read now the American Revolution is you know the sort of anti elite anti-aristocratic thing but as i've already said you know it, it is it is the elites of the american colonies that established the republic and in fact the constitution is explicitly set up to protect the power of those elites as against other members of society 
you, we could say that there's this kind of logic in the constitution that gets expanded and and more and more people get included over the generations. I don't actually think that that's a correct way of reading it. So let me basically give an alternative here. Um, so you're, yes, it's correct to say that there was a push against the monarchy and aristocracy that existed in Europe. But I think that you can effectively model this as an elite class that's trying to update the scripts that it's following and the the kind of organization of power that it has. So, you know, there is like a Republican mode of doing politics that is distinct from the aristocratic one. And it is, yeah, there are differences. There is this kind of like general openness that doesn't exist in the aristocracies. Um, there's this kind of like civic virtue thing, right? There's this corporative entity of the Republic. There are the elected officers. It's a different mode of doing power than the old European kingdoms were. And I think it's one that probably appealed for a lot of reasons to these land-owning frontier, you know, slash very, very nascent bourgeois families. It, and, you know, who had, and they had these like sort of semi-egalitarian Protestant commitments. Um, I think there's many reasons that they like this Republican mode of doing power. I don't think that that thing is necessarily anti-elite. And I think, in fact, one of the reasons that America kind of no, doesn't it wasn't, like to it think wasn't quite about, anti-elite. I, I, I say specifically anti-elite. Right, right. But, so yeah. when when you look at the, here in like South America, for example, right, where um, most of the continent followed in America's footsteps and had revolutions at various times led by the same, you know, local counterparts and republics were established, they were also established by local political elites. And there were usually wings of those elites that were, you know, they, they were kind of more open in how they considered that the regime should work. Uh, and others that were kind of, you know, more careful uh, or or hardline about how it should work. But you, the reason you get things like, you know, here in Brazil there's a military dictatorship. The reason you get things like that happening is because you have Republican elites here who, you know, effectively were, you know, or you know, not all of them, but a significant number were willing to agree to a period of military rule because they could convince themselves that in emergency threats to the state were in place and we're going to do military rule for 20 years. And then after that period was done for a number of reasons, the country transitioned back to democracy, right? There was this kind of Republican sensibility that remained among the elites, among the elite families that remained the way of doing power, even when democracy itself got suspended. So what you're dealing with is basically like an elite, you know, has, when you have a, a national elite, like one that is kind of that fully developed, there are like multiple different ways of how you do power. And so then the question is like, okay, so what is aristocracy then in, in that matrix? Can you have this principle of aristocracy in this kind of like new world Republican mode of organizing elite power? Or is there some iteration that you have to do if you're going to try and re-include that principle? So I'd be interested to hear your, your thought there. Well, I just I just think about the relation to the Romans, which, of course, these people were all thinking about at the time. Um, they were sort of looking at these these decadent Gothic monarchies uh, and Gothic aristocracies. I mean, Gothic uses a very loose sense here, but but essentially the the medieval, um, you know, Ger Germanic aristocracy that that had come to dominate Europe. And they're looking at that and they're saying, okay, this thing's kind of degenerated. What's what's the what's the sort of 
alternative in history. The, all the alternative in history is is the Romans, and and so they were drawing a lot on this idea of you know the senator, the senate, right, and 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 um, the Roman Republic, and so on. And of course, that's where a lot of the words come from that we use to describe the form of government that they built, and that. The, uh, the Roman, of course, had this distinction between the patricians, which were the sort of fatherly families of the city, the, the founding uh, aristocratic families. And they had this formal notion of patrician. And then, you know, and then you had the Senate, which is where people would end up at the, the sort of height of their power. They would be in the Senate and they would rise up to the Senate through some uh, cursus honorum and which is, you know, the, the, the course, the course of honor in, in English, um, or pseudo English, I guess. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so they, they end up in the Senate. The Senate is this basically aristocratic institution. The patricians are this, this aristocratic network kind of behind the Senate. And, you know, the big difference is, is they added this executive, the president. Um, and of course they, you know, d- different ways of structuring all kinds of things, including the judiciary. But, um, but I think I think they were they were trying to do something in a basically the Roman mode, or at least some of the people were trying to do it. But there was, I would still say there was enough of this. Like, it, it was expressed in legislation this this anti aristocratic principle, right? That, that this wasn't going to be about a bunch of established families. Right. It, it's not acceptable in in the republican mode of doing power to say. X family just controls this office. That's well, they know, don't have to control that office. I mean, that's that's a whole other thing. Like that, even the Romans weren't like that. No, no, right? but, they, no, but that, that, like, that's that's what I'm saying. That this sort of idea of public officer, where it's an individual chosen for that role, uh, that that's a key distinction, right? That's where you get that like corporative republican power. Whereas in the in the old aristocratic regimes, you could have a single family just control an office open endedly. Yeah, where where an office is like within a very feudal mode, where basically what you're talking about is is essentially a federation of of local powers. Um, then each each sort of family, the office that they control is well their local power, right? So you have the the marquee of so and so, right? They control this march, which is to say a county on the edge of on the edge of the kingdom. And or or you have, you know, various barons and counts and 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 so on. The and you have particular families that are, and dukes and whatever, right? And you have ver- various families that that control those positions. Now that's one way to do things. I don't think you know it wasn't really appropriate to the American context, and and um, I don't think that's the the only way to do it, right? But I. Maybe maybe that's all they meant by by this thing about you know there aren't going to be any titles. So, but we should probably define then you know in in having kind of had a bit of this side discussion, which which I think is useful. What do we mean by the principle of aristocracy? Yeah. So, and maybe this gets into Matisse's article. So Matisse Beton uh, wrote an article for Palladium Four uh, called "America's Next Aristocracy," and this is a very interesting um, article. It explores this these two kind of dualities that you can apply to a ruling elite one is the idea of do they have their power like is is the understood reason that they have their power because they deserve it or because they they 
serve some functional role within within the uh, the, the corporate body of of the state uh, and of society. And this this is interesting. Like this is um, those that is a real distinction. So one of the thinkers that he brings up in, in connection to this idea of of dessert versus functional um, legitimacy is Rawls. So the interesting thing about Rawls is he's arguing against the idea of that some group of people deserve power by any means, even and he's arguing, in fact, against meritocracy. This idea that that um, you know because you get high on the test scores or because you you know can do more work or whatever, you deserve to have the spoils. And the interesting thing, like I think he's right to argue against that idea. Like it is actually a bad idea, but interestingly. I think the way he went about it actually ended up reinforcing the idea of dessert as the only possibility that that it's like, you know, he he sort of attacked the idea of hierarchy. He he sort he he attacked the idea of of higher uh, of sort of deserving hierarchy that there's such a thing as like okay the people on top deserve to be on top. He said no, actually, this this whole hierarchy idea is in fact. Um, suspect whether or not you know and this dessert thing is almost this red herring but the interesting thing i think is that well hierarchy is not going anywhere right there's going to be hierarchy and and so the only thing left over is well what's the legitimacy notion of that hierarchy and after after rawls i mean there's this interesting implication that that well the only terms that the elite is used to thinking about the hierarchy in terms of is is uh, dessert, even though he was specifically arguing against that idea, it's actually it's it's sort of like it affected the vocabulary more than it affected the position, and and so the result is that you know a lot of the time when you ask when you ask for justification like why should why should these people at Harvard be the ones that that have those positions or like what is the meaning what is the meaning of these positions that what are the meaning of these privileges that people have. Um, the the answer you kind of hear from from the zeitgeist is, well, you know, these are the people who pass all the tests and do all this all this impressive stuff. So of course they get let into the elite universities and they deserve to have, uh, you know, these privileges at the top of society. And so it's it's interesting. Like in some, our our society ends up uh, being what Matisse calls. Uh, a dessert meritocracy. So it's a meritocracy in the sense that it distributes uh, position on the basis of so-called merit, which in this case, of course, we mean we mean things like ability to pass tests, ability to do work, um, ability like knowledge, um, expertise. Right. Like this is merit. This is not even merit in the sense of of oh, we've tried you on this job and you can do it well. This is merit in the sense of like you have achieved optimization on these five times removed metrics that imply yeah, you well, might be able let's, to do it let's in the even future. I mean we've talked about this before, yeah. but let's even let's even more. throw let's even throw them the steel man and say, no, actually we're talking about we're talking about actual competence. Like actual job specific competence. Let's say we're talking about actual job specific competence. Though we're talking about that of course in a individually indexed way. Um, but so you have you have you have a, a hierarchy, you know, all societies are based on a hierarchy. The hierarchy in our society is 
is is one of competence and um the the idea is that they deserve to have the privileges if they have the competence and so it's it's almost this actually socially social darwinism thing where it's like the people at the top um you know they 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 win this struggle of of competence you know they win in this competitive market and they this this competitive uh, elite school selection criteria and so on and, and so they get to extract from society and the rest of us get to be extracted from right right it's something that you know i i i think we basically people don't point it out much right under this model we we have a society where in fact uh you know elites simply deserve all their power and those who don't have any have been objectively tested to not deserve any so it it's it it kind of gets rid of a lot of um at least uh, let's let, let's say like the the sort of various kinds of noblesse oblige have the least reason to exist in in that kind of social order. Yeah, and and the only way people actually challenge this thing is is from that Rawlsian angle of oh no the hierarchy is unjust. Of course, of course it's about this merit thing, but but it's it's maybe we have too much too much hierarchy, right? And of course. But that's not the variable you get to control, and this this is the big flaw in in Rawls's attack on on the thing that that actually means that it. This, I mean, maybe this is even just the reason that Rawls is so popular is because it could be recuperated as actually a defense of of this this thing that we have this this social Darwinist um, desert meritocracy because Rawls only attacked the idea of hierarchy, which is like you're tilting at windmills at that point. It's a futile thing, and and what he enforced, what he reinforced, was this idea of desert. Um, and so you, this is this is the thing that you get. And ironically, at the end, you know, it's not even very good implementation of social Darwinism because the people on top aren't aren't even having like a lot of kids. So you know, the whole thing falls flat. Anyway, so Matisse also contrasts this with with this other mode of being a foreign elite. Um, so we've talked about. We've talked about meritocracy and we've talked about dessert. Now, the other mode of being, and, and these are different dimensions, they can vary independently. The other modes of being are, in contrast to merit, you can talk about character. Not what can you do, but who are you? What, what sort of person are you? Are you the right, are, are you, do you have good character? Are you, uh, are you uh, do you have the virtues? It's it's this uh, it's this subtly different thing, but this is sort of the we were trying to contrast like okay, what is the difference between this like rat race kind of civil service exam view of of human greatness versus the aristocratic mode? And in the aristocratic mode, we identified okay, this is actually about character. It's about who you are, and and so this is this other contrast right it's like okay well what if uh, instead of competence you have uh character i i think the strongest version of that is like are you are you sort of the best specimen of the human being rather than are you are you the most the best the best sort of like worker and it's the total capacities right it's 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 the total capacity it's not just what can you do it's it's what do you want Right. Do you have the right balances? Right. That's right. There's sort of this you element. The, do you have the right outlook, the right worldview? Like this, it actually brings in a much more holistic view of things. It brings in these other questions that are implicitly, uh, or or 
I'd rather explicitly left out in the meritocracy thing. In the meritocracy thing, it's like, no, it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your culture is. What matters is like, how hard can you push those spreadsheets? And I mean, that's a little bit of a straw man, but not that much. And, and yeah, so the, the, the contrast there is, is character aristocracy. Now it's always funny that, that of course, meritocracy and aristocracy mean very similar things, right? It's like merit. It's like, what's, what is this merit thing? Aristos, of course, is just the best. Um, so it's like rule by the best or rule by the people who, who sort of are merited. It's, it's, it's like this, this very undefined thing. So they only take on these meanings by convention, right? Like they don't actually have a denotational, you know, yeah. if we were going to give the, the, the sort of the meritocracy frame, it's, it's strongest expression, um, or like it's, it's steel, man. Like what, what was its legitimate thing when it came about? And because, you know, the, these things generally, when they're very successful are addressing something that was actually yeah, dysfunctional. Yeah, they are, they are and, and in this real. case, you know, we, you know, we, we, it doesn't come up in, in one specific place, right? Sort of across um, the Anglosphere in places like France. I, I would say if effectively like across the industrial world, right? You you have these these new families coming up. Eventually, obviously, there's natural conflict. And a lot of these places had their norms about who controls various kinds of political power or parts of the state based on the old... Uh, personal ownership, familial, land-owning, aristocratic way of doing things. And to a degree, that was obviously not going to keep working. There was going to start to be dysfunction. There was dysfunction, right? There was dysfunction in military. The, the Some states were not developing in the way that they had to to cope. Uh, and I mean, you know, we see some places like Spain or Portugal effectively stay like that way into you know, the, the modern era, the local old elites are much more successful. They're holding on to power. And as a result, they become backwater. Even now, right, it, in, in, in like 2021, uh, a place like Portugal still lags behind the rest of Europe. Would that have happened if, if the transition had happened earlier when they could have, you know, um, harnessed the gains more effectively? Maybe, maybe not. We don't know. But it probably set them back, right? And so there is this there is this kind of holistic concern about um, when you have this kind of natural transition happening between the structures of power, right, from land to industrial power, between what the, the composition of the elite class is, you have, you have to have updates in how those deals are made. And, and I think that effectively the role meritocracy played in its various ways is obviously very bound up in like eventually in the Republican rhetoric uh, was this notion that if we break away the dessert from familial connection and tie to ability to do the job, that is in some sense better for everyone. And in many places, it clearly worked effectively, right? Because if you are being integrated into a political culture that would use you effectively, that works pretty well. But eventually, that situation starts to crumble. And, and then those efficacy gains stop. This is like the big question of when do you need competence versus when do you need character? And, and you need competence when you have relatively well-defined ends and you need to just mobilize society in pursuit of those ends. And you need character when your ends are more up in the air and you need to be, you need to be sort of seeing farther and, um, 
seeing farther and, and, and pursuing, pursuing like the good things in life, pursuing, um, I guess like peacetime basically. So this is really peacetime versus war is, is one way of looking at this in war. You want that you want the competent people in peacetime. You actually don't just want the competent people because you actually don't have well-defined ends. You want people who can define your ends very well. You want people who are going to be cultivating the arts. You want people who are going to be cultivating, uh, you know, literature, music, etc. You want people who are going to be cultivating a beautiful and functional society, but not necessarily for any particular dire immediate end, but rather exploring the various ends that we could be pursuing um, and, and building up society overall. And so those are those are sort of you have you have different needs at different times. So and just to kind of like bring bring the main thesis uh, that Matisse gives in again, we where we live in a society that was largely defined through the 20th century by the meritocratic models, where now those deals have broken down, now those games have ended. We now live in a dysfunctional meritocracy where the battles are about spoils, where these kind of like ultimate goals no longer even discipline the whole thing. We're left with the kind of structure meritocracy, but not its benefits for the most part. I'm going to open kind of a parenthesis here. We're being very abstract kind of in these concepts, but one of our other O4 pieces, K. Christopher Delkey's House, Liberal Civility Decays, I think paints a very, very good picture of why it matters that we recognize that a dysfunctional meritocracy is what we live in. Because we, you know... There is a set of norms that exist there, right? Again, power still exists. The way that you organize power is, you know, that also still exists, even when it's dysfunctional. But when those norms disintegrate, then the field opens up for conflict. And when you have conflict among those with power, that's when things start to become unstable, when they can start to become dangerous. And so what happens in republics a lot of the time, when power goes into conflict mode. Well, what's happening is that this use of power to secure private interests instead of this kind of like overall interest, right, that the the Republican model is meant to sort of inculcate in you, you effectively start to have the entire state no longer having an actual caretaker, right? Because there is no king. That's not how it's supposed to work. There is a corporative body whose members oversee its overall function. If no one within the state is doing that, it is rudderless. And what usually happens is military power starts to step in because, you know, for various reasons, I won't kind of, you know, go through the whole piece again here, but militaries tend to A, have the hard power to actually be a final check against private conflict among other elites. Uh, And second, they usually have a very strong organizational mode, right? Like within the military, the kind of culture that the entire state is meant to have still exists in kind of a microcosm. And so when the military becomes the only kind of overall functional part of the state in crisis modes, they tend to want to step in. Often in a very hesitant way, by the way, if you actually read about like when military governments get set up in South America or uh, Europe or, or the Middle East, 
you know, we kind of have this this uh, picture of like you know these enthusiastic generals are smoking cigars. They can't wait. That happens on occasion. Like Gaddafi probably was like that. But a lot of times, militaries are like very hesitant to step in until they have to. And then when they step well, it's in, because that's not what they're right. Because that's not they, what they're supposed and they to be know doing. That's not like, what that's they're not supposed their to do. And they know it's not what they're competent at. And so what happens is there is an excess of hard power. And that's how you start getting, you know, the, all the things we think about the roundups of random people because they they looked at a communist magazine once or whatever it is. Uh, but that's unstable for a reason. So I, I want to kind of paint that picture because it matters a lot if we're living in this kind of, you know, shell of a Republican and now meritocratic structure of power that is no longer functioning. So close that parentheses. Uh, and yeah, so just the, the final yeah. idea... I mean, the final idea, which I think is actually in some ways the most important one in, in Matisse's article um, on America's next aristocracy, is that the contrast to desert, instead of, instead of basically the elite being defined by extracting spoils from everyone else, he says the, the alternative is functionalist, which is that they, they serve some function in the system. And... That basically you think of the society overall as some kind of corporate uh, entity. It, it's some sort of so like it's an organic body um, and its parts serve roles within the holistic function of the thing. Um, and so which is to say this is this is sort of like the contrast to the social Darwinist idea. This is the idea that no, that actually the, the society overall is is our unit of identity, not. Uh, and and the unit of of you know to to bring it to Darwinist terms like the unit of evolution is the society overall rather than rather than the the competition between elites within society and and so this is this idea that he contrasts and says no actually the 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 way when an aristocracy is healthy the way it thinks of itself is as one of the bodies one of the organs within the within the 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 body of the state or within the body of of society and it has this well-defined role right which is to to kind of guide the whole thing just to steer its direction to 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 be sort of the the strategic executive in a way i mean to to connect it to what you were saying about dalkey's article you get you get an elite that either it either it identifies with the state and the principle of the state, which is to say it identifies with the public or identifies with, with the organized execution of the interests of the public, um, the public defined in this organic manner rather than a necessarily a populist manner. Um, but then the, the alternative is, is like this, this like more selfish motivation, like a, a particularist motivation and and so the the point that that Matisse is making is the elites should be identifying uh, a healthy elite, those types that you want to cultivate, should be identifying with the execution of the public interest. Like that that is how they see their power. That is how they see their base of power. That is how they see their place in the world. Is that they are saying no? We are the ones who occupy this position in society, and we carry that out. I I think that. One important um, observation to make here is that when we look at some of this history going back, we're learning a lot of important lessons, but also you don't form elites by 
studying, you know, the past through books. That's not how that works. I think that there's this kind of presumption, let's say, you know, especially among like people who are already kind of intellectuals in their temperament or in their interests, where if you just kind of like read enough of, uh, you know, read enough about the past or, or about great figures, you can kind of like learn the right principles and then enact them. I don't think that that is how elites are made, either as individuals or as classes, right? Like even in America, these are people operating on, you know, at the very start, operating on like this religious zeal foundation and figuring out how the frontier works. Uh, and it, even even the 20th century elite, right? The ones figuring out how the whole industrial meritocracy thing works are doing it in the great wars. They're They're kind of, they're working with the most effective version of the thing because they have to. And so if we're looking at like, how do you cultivate elites, right? This is the, the, the ultimate question that we're driving to here. There, it's kind of like where, where, what places, what landscapes, what situations, what regions, what cultures, what activities form the sorts of people who can actively break away from this kind of huge, massive dead weight of institutions and of norms and of assumptions that we live in and actually like figure out a position and i don't mean that in a like an in, in, in ideological sense i mean a position as owners of personal empires where where they're no longer you know in thrall to to just the wreckage that's around them you need people who can actually sort of reshape the landscape around them who can operate on different values who don't plan their lives and their goals according to what's parroted to them by the kind of institutions that we've talked about in other pieces in Palladium 4. So, you know, that we have Avi's piece, and he looks at the criminal underworld, where you, you know, you have a lot of this happen. And, and we also have uh, your piece, Wolf, which uh, has a very simple message, which is that you should quit your job. Do you want to say anything kind of about, like, just the, the earlier part of the piece first? Just that act of, like, why should you quit your job? What do you mean? Where, like, what should you do? Yeah, I mean, yeah, so this, the way this comes, the way this fits into the overall theme of, of Palladium 4, the overall narrative structure of Palladium 4. So we started out with this big kind of survey of America's elite universities. And, of course, it's rather pessimistic. Um, there are probably still things you learn there, but but probably you want to supplement it with something else. And so in the 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 latter third of the magazine, as Ash was saying, we have these articles about basically how how to kind of set yourself up as um, just as, as a free individual, as as sort of liberated man rather than rather than institutionalized man and and that's sort of the broad you know becoming an elite is a subset of that it it's it's not the whole of it i don't think i think okay this is this is still a lot of like preamble but but i think you should not be aiming at people should not be aiming at or or thinking of it in terms of i want to be elite that is the wrong mindset the right mindset is i want to be a free man and i want to act on the world in particular ways and uh, you know, and then whether you whether that path sort of leads to some sort of elite level success is this whole other part of the question. And but yeah, so so that's that's sort of this this question I was pursuing was, well, 
how, what should people be doing actually? And the way I came to this was, you know, looking at my own experience and looking at, at the experience of people around me, I noticed that I often am counseling my friends to quit their jobs, that, that they're stuck. I, I noticed that they're stuck. They're working some comfy job, some comfy engineering job in Silicon Valley or whatever. And, you know, they're getting paid big bucks. They're, they're rising the ranks. You know, they're, they're learning maybe a lot, but they're learning how to navigate within this institutional structure and not necessarily how to build institutional structure. And, and I think, I think, you know, therefore it's institutionalized man rather than liberated man. And I just think there's a lot of potential for not being in that mode. And so I started writing this article called Quit Your Job. I sort of had the idea before I actually wrote it all out. Um, so I started with, you know, my experience. Basically, I quit my engineering job in 2014 and d- dallied for a few years before settling on something like Palladium. And it does take a long time, uh, sort of out in the wilderness, so to speak, before you really find find whatever it's going to be that that is is like the new thing but i think i think it's this necessary process right it's like the big metaphor that i use throughout the whole thing is imagine you have this big untracked wilderness filled with dangers and opportunities and then you have the tracked parts of that you have the roads you have the towns and you know obviously most people are in the on the roads and in the towns and I'm saying, no, wait, look, there's other stuff out there. You can go off the roads. You can go out of the towns. You can go out into the wilderness. And so I'm applying this metaphor to kind of the space of things you could do with your life. Most of it is this vast, untracked wilderness. And parts of it are this, this highly institutionalized um, road and town sort of network. And... And, you know, for most people, I think they should stick to the roads and the towns. I think for some people, especially people with the means to do so, it is necessary that people be going out beyond what is known and what is done to what is possible and what is out there. And so this is this is this big idea that I'm advocating throughout the whole thing. And that's that's really where it starts. But then, as, as Ash is, is suggesting, into the latter half, I get actually into a lot of, I would almost call it like, like metaphysics or theology of, of, I don't know what it is, but, but like success of striving of life. Of what it means for a thing like this to be successful, maybe. Yeah. You, you, I just want to kind of call attention to a point you make actually. So we're, you know, quit your job. It's sort of implying there's an employer uh, you know, there's people out there who, you know, may, maybe they invested in the right coin at some point. They're they're now independently rich. Uh, are these people uh, free by virtue of their wealth, or are they still wage slaves? Ah, uh, yes, the, yes. This this is an important question. Yeah, of course. That I uh, I will credit Thoreau. I actually I'm not sure whether I got <laughs> yeah, it directly. You, you from mentioned Thoreau, Walden but... in here, which I know you're a fan of. Um, I thought this was an interesting connection uh, that you make in the piece but yeah effectively but, but that... basically that your wealth your wealth can just be just another shit job um right you because you have to manage the money like, right it, yeah you're you're like there's some work i mean thoreau gives this great example right of these people who are supposedly well off 
who inherited some big farm, right? Like, you know, they're well off in the sense that they've inherited some big farm. They've got this big farmhouse and yet they spend all their time toiling to maintain this thing and to, to, you know, to operate within its teleology. It, you know, it wants to, to become a successful farm. The farmhouse wants to be maintained. The farmhouse wants to be filled with all this stuff. The stuff needs to be organized. The stuff needs to be clean. The stuff needs to be protected. People need to, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like there's this whole kind of set of work involved, even in having sort of inherited wealth. And he says, well, this is actually just slavery. You've actually just been enslaved to this thing that you supposedly own. And, and so this is this idea that I apply in general to wealth that you might have. If like, if you think about what is your role in the universe, um, you've got all this wealth and, and, you know, your role in the universe basically insofar as the wealth is concerned is, well, you are in charge of this little slice of the economy and your job is to make it grow in a healthy manner um, and apply it in a healthy manner. And so if you're just sitting there, you know, growing this, growing the wealth diligently as some sort of uh, fly by night, self-elected civil servant who's, who's managing part of the part of the sovereign wealth fund, well, that's just a shit job. And if you're not working very hard at it, that's just because your labor union's really powerful, right? Like I, I basically compare the capitalist class uh, and capitalism to a labor union of, of the idle rich. And it's it's like so you can make this transformation in your mind and say like no wait a minute what are you actually getting out of this are you the, the thing that makes money uh this object of freedom is only when you use it to decide what future is going to happen not it's when you use it to decide not when you grow it not when you like have financial freedom which is you know to thoreau's point and and to modern observations, it says not changed. Um, you know, so-called financial freedom is really just the slavery to number go up, and uh, you're not actually getting much out of that. You're just becoming psychologically even more insecure about about the thing. This is what I see in in some friends, right? Um, and and this is why I make these points is to try to g- give my friends an exhortation to uh, to live differently. And, and so basically, no, you are not free just because you are wealthy. Um, you, need to, you need to quit your job in the sense of like the, subordinate the money and all your resources to your will and, and your whims and go out there in the, in the wilderness and the frontier and like figure something out that is what you're going to spend that wealth on. Um, and, and that wealth includes, you know, your own body, your own labor potential. What, what are you spending your life on in, in the most fatal sense? And I think, I think I, I, one of the examples that I use actually that, that I like to bring up often, I'd, I wish there were more examples, but I use the example of Elon Musk when, when he got rich, um, off PayPal, he didn't turn around and, and, you know, start becoming a VC and, and uh manage his money you know keep it in some big responsible pot no he piled it into a number of very large very irresponsible projects that were basically insane uh solar electric cars and space rockets and 
you know, these these are like, what what are you doing, man? It, I, I thought GM determined that that wasn't going to work. You know, I thought rockets could only be done by the government. Like these are crazy projects when he did them. And and he t- put all of his money into them. Right. I think he, he tells the anecdote that he was like borrowing money from friends to pay the rent. Right. Yeah. And and this is the correct attitude. You pile all your resources, like you take that leap of faith out of the matrix into some weird thing that you've come up with that you think feels important to you. And like that is where that is where the the, the sort of true existence lies. Anyway, and, so this and the is leap my point. of faith thing, you know, I, I think that even applies at, at, at kind of the foundations of especially new elites. So, you know, the two that come to mind, obviously you have again the American national elite, you know, in, in their kind of early ancestry are going back to people who got on ships and crossed an ocean and a lot of them didn't survive and they get to the new world and a lot of them don't survive and they build farmsteads and colonies and a lot of them don't survive and the ones that do survive you know every winter you know every winter that they've decided not to flee back to england is a risk you you could even say also the chinese by the way the the obviously the new chinese ruling class um you know the the ones whose family ties go back to the the early days of the party in like the the twenties and thirties. Uh, those are people whose ancestors decided. Ah, I guess I'm picking up a gun and I'm running into battle uh, and I'm going to be fighting the Japanese and the nationalists, both of whom right now have uh, better money and organization than we do, and I'll probably die. And they won. So and these are the periods that become like the mythic periods, right? Later in history. Um, in in any society, right? Like with the Romans, you have early all these early Roman tales, mythic in some ways. But I think the thing that isn't mythic is the the level of like insane risk and the culture where you had young men establishing themselves in public life because they took insane risks that paid off and won another province or what overcame an enemy, right? Like there there's this kind of collective level of the same principle. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the reason I use the, the leap of faith metaphor is it, it sort of subtly gets at some really difficult parts here. So on the one hand, subjectively, there's a lot of risk. The, you, you think that there's a lot of risk. You really worry about the risk. There are, in fact, a lot of things that can go wrong. And, you know, a leap of faith feels like that, right? It's this, this like, I'm going to jump out into the void. I always think of that scene from Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, where he has to like step out into the into the void on the basis of faith that something is going to be there to catch him. And of course there is something there to catch him, but he still has to leap out into the into the void. Um but anyway, so there's this idea of the leap of faith. So it it feels like there's a lot of subjective risk. But at the same time, you have the faith because it's coming from your own heart in a sense. It's like it's coming from your own instinct. It's coming from your own will. At some level, you also know that the thing is there to catch you. There's going to be something there. It's just that like you can't prove that to anyone else. And so you have to rely in this very existential sense on your own, like your own epistemology. It's like it's like this ultimate grounding in your own instinct. It's like, you know that it's there, but you actually have to trust yourself and trusting yourself is the hard part or trusting God or whatever, right? And it's it's like, it's hard. 
Well, because so, sometimes so it's reason, not, I know that there's an island over there that I'll arrive at. Sometimes it's, God wants me to go into the ocean, right? Like, that. that is uh, the kind of, like, that's a version of this where there is effectively no proof except for this higher kind of faith with with yeah uh, exactly there's no, there's no real rational way to explain it to other people now that that might be like a rare instance of this but i think it's probably one of the most powerful versions of it you know that and it's super powerful and and i think it's it's less rare than people think i think people just don't take leaps of faith so they don't they don't actually exist in that world but here's the thing let's um you're saying like oh yeah it's actually really dangerous well sort of but the fact that like I think in an objective sense, if you have a good grounding in in what's true, yeah, it again, it's subjectively scary. There are a lot of things that can go wrong. You do actually have to trust yourself. But if you're actually thinking about it and being scared of it and doing it anyways, probably it's a pretty good bet. And the thing that actually is re- that really gets you, where you really fail the leap of faith, is the fact that you're always taking a leap of faith, but usually not thinking about it. And, and so when you really think about it, you take some new leap of faith, that's actually like, maybe that's one of the more certain parts of your life. That's one of the, the places where you actually have agency over your situation. And, and the rest of the time, you're just like chugging along in some job or, or, you know, to, to broaden the metaphor in some bunch of assumptions that you've inherited that you have never questioned. <laughs> and those assumptions are a continuous leap of faith. Like any life form, including you know the form that your life takes, um, is inherently based on a bunch of assumptions that the environment is going to be a certain way and it's going to remain a certain way, and that is a faith that it has, and there, that is not something that is rash, rationally thought out or rationally derived from from some like uh, maximally solid view from nowhere. It's like no, actually you you are constantly existing in this state of faith and you are constantly making these leaps this judgment that that this is going to be the way things are it's just that usually you're not thinking about it so so where you actually fail in a leap of faith and sometimes you get it wrong because you did it for the wrong reasons you didn't actually have the right kind of faith in your heart uh and thus got the question wrong and jumped off jumped off a cliff instead of jumping onto some invisible ledge or whatever and the way you actually fail is when you've taken the leap of faith into this new mode and now you're successful in the new mode you're operating in it maybe for generations now it's your descendants and they're still taking that same leap of faith but the environment has changed out from under them and and they weren't paying attention so it's it's not the leap of faith that's dangerous it's not paying attention to the leaps of faith that you're making that is dangerous and and that's again it's this existential vertigo like you do not get to escape that by like escaping into the established institutions. No, the established institutions are taking a big leap of faith and maybe they're going to fail it, right? And maybe that's the situation our society is in right now is our society, our whole stack of institutions is on a bun- is built on a bunch of assumptions that are going to become false. And, and so this is why, like one of the reasons to quit your job is like at least your destiny is in your own hands. And you, you're not just like taking someone else's leap of faith. So, so I'm, I'm sure a lot of people hear this and be like, okay, so it sounds almost as if uh, if I take a leap of faith, things will basically work out and they'll work out well. Mm-hmm. 
and no. uh, <laughs> you know this but th this yes if you have the right if, if, right if, if, if you have these, these these correct priors but even that right well, I want to connect this to the just world idea. Right, right. Um, so I was going to say, so there's, there's this concept of like the just world fallacy and, you know, a certain type of person likes to find fallacies. Uh, I, I generally think that fallacies are really only something that generally apply in actual, you know, strict logical argumentation. Like the reason fallacies arise is because they're these heuristics that actually work pretty well a lot of the time, but you can't use them as arguments. And so in this case, we're dealing with decisions. We're not dealing with logical arguments. So do you think this, you know, do you think just world matters here? Yeah. So this is one of the points I make. So I, I talk about this thing of like, if you have the right kind of faith and you take that leap, then, you know, the universe will reward you, right? Because you had the right thing. But, you know, sometimes the universe doesn't reward you and it's because you didn't have the right thing. And whoops, you know, um, they, so under this idea is this um this notion that i have which is that you basically get rewarded for the real virtue you actually have and the part of part of the reason that i brought up the whole just world thing is i'm trying to convince people that and this is something i believe and that that in my experience is very true that out on the frontier out in the fringes uh, out in the wilderness if you're doing something worthwhile and you're approaching the thing with the right attitude, then it will work for you. You will find ways, uh, you will find the resources that you need. And the, 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 you know, other people will want to support you. Um, things will work out for you in random ways you couldn't have predicted. You'll be in territory that no one else is in. And so there'll just be a bunch of opportunities lying around that no one else has ever considered. Uh, there's just all kinds of stuff like that. You will have gained in competence as a result of existing out on the frontier and thus able to take advantage of opportunities that other people can't. So the, the claim that I make is, yes, the universe will provide. And then the, the sort of objection to that claim is, but that's the just world fallacy. The universe won't necessarily provide because, you know, the universe isn't actually just. Just because I'm doing something good doesn't mean that the world will actually recognize that. And, and so this is why I explicitly bring in the just world fallacy and I take it on and I say, no, actually, I think the world is just in this particular way. Um, now, this requires uh, a bit of philosophical discussion and which I, I tackle to some extent in the article. I've already given a little bit of argumentation for the just world, but that's that's where it sort of fits in, is that if if we live in in the kind of world that rewards uh, the right kinds of virtue, then you know if you're doing the right thing, you will be rewarded for it. Now, here's the flip side of that: that um, if you're not doing the right kind of thing, you will get blown out, and this will be justice, right? And like you have no right to complain about that because you just like went out there in the frontier and fooled around, and and oops, you got you got blown out, right? And actually, that was justice. Um, and, and I think, but I think like there's this interesting sort of freeing thing where you start to identify with justice more than you identify with your own fate. And you say, well, whatever happens to me, it's going to be justice if I am, you know, if, if I am truly putting myself forth, then like whatever happens to me is going to be justice. I don't really have to worry about that. If I get blown out, it's like, okay, I guess I wasn't the right thing. 
And and so this is where I connected also to the biological ideas. Now, maybe this is a weird connection to make to go from like this kind of metaphysical theological concept of the just world to uh, to, you know, evolution or something. But consider the genome of an organism as the leap of faith that it's making. It's it's fundamental axioms, right? It's it inherits these axioms in its blood and and it it lives on that basis it lives entirely on that basis it doesn't know i use the example of the squirrel um you know the squirrel doesn't know or has no no way of knowing but under its own power that the nuts will still be there in the spring or or sorry the nuts will still be there in the winter that it buried in the in in the fall um you know because as it as it needs these nuts to it needs to dig up the nuts to survive right and it just does it. It just has this faith that it can do that. And this is, you know, I, I think the, there's that, that parable from Jesus as well. Like, look at the birds, right? The birds, they have the things that, that they need. They are provided for uh, by God. They don't worry. They don't have to worry about that. I mean, sometimes they die, but, it, you know, that's when they're overpopulated or whatever. Um, or there's a predator around. But But basically, like, there are the things out there but like they they just are living the way they live and they're doing the thing that they're supposed to be doing and then if that thing is right and if they're in the right place then they flourish doing it and this is and this is sort of apply this idea to the entirety of biology you get basically this idea that the genome is sort of your axioms the axioms of the kind of virtue that you're going to represent in the world and you go and represent that virtue in the world and if you got it right and you survive and reproduce and if you weren't right well it wasn't like your reason that didn't get it right it was your axioms and and so it's it's like it's this process of of sort of uh selecting the the axioms that actually work and this is in, in some sense like where a lot of the good things about life come from is the fact that you know the world is, is fairly good at selecting for for the right things and yeah so it's just like you make that connection it's just like okay well my sort of spiritual genome is of course not just the things that i got through my blood or or through through your blood if we're talking about about any any of the listeners it's like it's not just the things we got through our blood it's it's also the things that we received these ideas whatever but we we there are these processes that formed us. They formed our axioms. They form our instincts. But then what I'm saying is basically you should actually go and live by your instincts and the result will be justice. And I think it's actually a lot more promising than most people realize. I think it turns out better more of the time than people realize. And, and you should have a philosophical detachment from the downside. So we have this principle, right? That and I think it is basically a theological principle. You should love justice more than your own particularities or your own failings or your own failures to measure up to justice. Your own flesh. Uh, your like, own flesh. Yeah, love yeah. justice more you than should, your own flesh. You should be conforming yourself to justice in that theological sense. On the other hand, you know, with most things in life, you don't get the kind of like final apocalyptic level test, you know, out of the gate, right? Like you, you know, 
it when you get blown out it's like you failed you know the the kind of supreme level of the thing generally speaking right you you get these smaller tests as you try to do things right and you figure out how to pass them or you fail at them and then you learn the lesson and you update right and and that's where the humility comes in right it's like you you figure out something's not working and so you excise it and it's like uh, this this thing that you were so attached to about your your project or the thing you're trying to build or the the art you're trying to create the piece you're trying to write whatever it is this thing you were so detached to uh, does not actually work okay I guess I have to update this fundamental thing that I liked uh, I'm you know I'm gonna have to conform to what is working what I'm seeing in front of me yeah but but ultimately like you're always you're always grounded in your own instinct like even if you think it's like yeah i'm reformulating myself to be what what empirically seems to be justice uh what empirically seems to be the things that work ultimately like your judgment of that is still your own axioms right it's not so th this doesn't mean like oh yeah like live fully whatever latest dumb idea you got last thursday this is this is it's more like ultimately you must you sort of come to terms with the like the the fatal condition of being existentially dependent on your own judgment and like just lean harder on that is kind of the thing that i'm claiming right well and it's a disciplined process right like any sufficiently complicated or large goal is gonna take you're gonna have to go through the cycle again and again and again right and in in different ways so you're if you go into it with a short-term mentality, I don't think you actually end up sticking around long enough for this process to really play out. Like, you're not going to yes, see that's, a very that's, evolved form yeah, you don't, of the thing you're trying to do. You don't get the feedback right away. And this is this is actually, again, the, the, the point of, like, you have to trust your own instincts more than you, more than you, like, worry about the immediate feedback in a way, especially if you think you're playing a longer game. It's like, well, if I think I'm playing a 20-year game, I'm not really going to know until maybe more than 20 years from now whether it worked. There's this other point that I brought up that, I, that seems related to this, which is I summarize it with this, this disjunction, king or monk. And, you know, this is related to what it actually looks like to get blown out. I think, you know, in practice, in today's society, when you get blown out, it doesn't mean you die. You know, you don't get cast out of the tribe and killed. Maybe you, maybe you should, maybe, maybe you should shoot that hard. But like, I think the, the more realistic sort of juxtaposition is, is sort of this king or monk thing where you live a certain lifestyle and sometimes that works out and you become something great, you know, king summarized, uh, or sometimes it doesn't work out that well and you end up living under a bridge and basically you're a monk. You know, like this is the other thing. I think people have this like irrational fear of of sort of ending up homeless or something because because I think they identify homelessness with drug addiction and mental illness as opposed to simply living outside. Like living outside is not that bad. The, the, the hard part is being mentally ill and drug addicted, right? <laughs> well, but also also with failure, right? I, I think that there is this important... Uh... No, right. But like, but like failure, like just accept that the failure is just and like live, live in the manner that is, that, that makes sense to you. And it will achieve the results that are, that are, that are sort of like, uh, 
just. Of course, there's also the stochastic component. So you have to you have to be willing to like eat that sandwich, so to speak, of like, you know, maybe maybe you're just gonna be a monk forever. You actually can't know. You actually can't know what what fate has in store for you. You only know are you living by your instinct as to what is the right way to live. And sometimes, you know, you live like that for a long time. You're a monk for for 10 years and then opportunity gets dropped on you. And because you've been pursuing that particular kind of contemplation, you are ready to seize this real opportunity and you you become a king. Yeah, well, and there, there's these weird contingencies that happen that you don't realize the benefit of until the opportunity strikes. Yeah, right? and and so, but like you only get that by actually living and actually be willing, being willing to eat that downside, and like live on your instinct and be willing to eat the downside, and and this is like that that like high variance lifestyle. I think is just way it it like way makes way more sense for for this kind of thing like again coming back to this original concept of like what does it mean to be sort of a free man it's it's well you're living that you're living by instinct living that high variance lifestyle and it's like you have to consider the the sort of high variance probability distribution between king or monk to be superior to the low variance probability distribution of definitely you know working the job of you inherited the farm and you have the stock portfolio and like whatever right it's it's like the this this is the thing that i'm again i'm i'm sort of making this exhortation to my friends and the people who read us that you should be open to that you should be living that lifestyle like mo- too too many of you are too narrow in your ambitions you're too scared you're too caught up in the matrix and you need to quit your job and go just shoot your shot on the frontier, the wilderness, and you're going to end up being a king. You're going to end up being a monk. You're going to end up dead. And like that kind of isn't the, isn't what, that's not what you're worried about. What you're worried about is whether you're living with integrity of on, on your own, like instinct. By the way, if this way of talking about goals and, and how they play out sounds a lot like abstraction, negation, and concretization, uh, that occurred to me as well. I'm of course referring to the uh, the actual uh, Hegelian dialectic. So, open question for the audience: Is Wolf a Hegelian? Discuss. People always accuse me of being a Hegelian, but I've never read Hegel. Are you planning on reading Hegel? <laughs> yeah, eventually. But you know, these things take a long time. Hegel does take a long time. I, anyway, I, I'm I'm a I'm a very much operating within the like transcendentalist tradition, which is to say Thoreau, Emerson, and Nietzsche. Um, and, and of course with a healthy mixture of Darwin, uh, maybe but... <laughs> there's an intellectual version of just doing the Thoreau thing. Just, just don't, don't get into discourses. Don't read too many people. Just like try the ideas and, and, and see how they work. There's this first just live it, thing. man. Exactly. Um, okay. Well, I think so, this is a good place to stop. Yeah. So anyway, I, I, I hope that people have gotten, um, a good overview. This was a pretty complicated issue. Uh, of the print editions to put together just because there was ov- there were obviously so many pieces we could have written pieces we had published that we could have included i think ultimately i'm i'm very happy with the collection we have here i i think that there is this balance of institutional analysis and lifestyle and that kind of like philosophy of life that both of those elements need to be there in the process of lead cultivation um obviously we've done a lot of work on the the you know, first of those, the analysis side. 
I definitely want to be throwing us into a lot more on the lifestyle side. You know, people who are maybe living on physical frontiers uh, or or people who have gone to, to non-physical ones, right? People who are doing the sort of stuff we've talked about here, who have taken these leaps of faith and are maybe working on those things, or maybe they've paid off. It's a very open-ended concept here, but I am yeah, fairly we convinced hear, hear that, more of that. Yeah, but that's the nature of the thing, right? Like the these things are not super defined yet. These things are not super well established. Um, I think in those case, and in those cases, in fact, just to draw this in, that's where the character thing matters, right? Because it, you know, I'm sure we've all had this experience. You look at a person who's doing something kind of crazy, and it's like, hmm, this person seems like a scam artist, and you're not going to trust that person. But a person who you know has good judgment and good character, takes a crazy leap of faith, you might just want to join that person. And maybe that's what you yeah, should Yeah, actually, do. this is this is a really good point. This connects to, I think, some of the like difficulty of defining what that character thing is that we were talking about with Matisse's article. Well, in the light of what I'm talking about with my article, the the thing that I'm talking about in terms of those that faith, those axioms, that inheritance that you're you're basing your judgment on, as you take your leap of faith, that that is what we're talking about with character, right? It's this, it's do you actually have the virtue? Do you actually have the right axioms? And and that is maybe the more important thing than, you know, ab ability to get the job done is important, but but you know, obviously you have to be able to pursue whatever vision you have. But having the right vision is is maybe the more fundamental thing when you're when you're in a situation that is is less clear. Yes, exactly. And and I think that as you get people joining you who who end up really deeply inculcating that same vision, that that sort of like collective sharing of the thing increases the leaps of faith that you're willing to make. That's this is a very important aspect of it. One more point against meritocracy, which is I said that meritocracy was useful in war. And and aristocracy or like character basis uh, in the elite useful in in peace times. Well, I think war maybe just be a it might just be a failure of character. Uh, I have to just make this anti-war point. I've, I've been on the anti-war bent recently, but they you get into war because of a failure of negotiation and a failure of communication and a failure of defining the right ends between two powers and. Like there's the, war is the result of something having failed in peacetime. And so it's, it's not this, it's like, yeah, it happens inevitably because it's just like, that's God's backstop for, for your failures of character. That's how God delivers justice is sends, sends war upon you. But like war is, war is like punishment for your sins. And actually, if you had the virtues, you wouldn't have gone into the war. Um, I'll just raise that point. But we should talk about that at more length some other time. Uh, there's probably a lot of caveats to that. Yeah, yeah, of course. Anyway, I, I want to that we've left we've left people with a lot of stuff here. Again, uh, Palladium Four coming out in the next few weeks. Uh, we'll release the precise date uh, in the coming days. If you have not subscribed yet, uh, please do palladium palladiummag.com slash subscribe. You can still get this issue. Uh, and obviously, you'll also be eligible for all future issues of the print magazine uh, and a number of other benefits. So, Wolf, thanks for uh, joining today. Um, this is super interesting. And we're going to have some of the other writers on as well. Uh, so there's going to be some cool discussions.
All right, this was fun. Okay, see you guys later. See you. That's all for now. <laughs>